Revelation chapter 12, and reading the first three verses, Revelation 12, verses 1 to 3, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven <coughs> crowns upon his heads. And our subject this evening is the woman and the dragon. So we continue uh, in our series in this great book of Revelation. And uh, we've been working our way very carefully and very reverently and fearfully uh, through this book. We don't want to get anything wrong. Uh, but although there is a, a great deal that is mysterious in this book and difficult in this book, there is also a great deal uh, that is clear and plain once we understand how to interpret this book. And uh, as you all know by now, the way we are interpreting this book is by following the cycles that are clearly to be seen in the book. Different views of the same thing. Seven different views of the gospel age. And uh, once we apply that system, uh, the book becomes a lot easier to understand and makes more sense. So seven cycles in total. And uh, with chapter 12, we begin the fourth cycle. But not only do we begin the fourth cycle in chapter 12, but uh, we also begin the second half of the book. Yes, it's true that the book can be uh, divided into seven cycles, but it can also be divided into two parts. The first half of the book has presented us with the outward struggle of the church against the world and uh, the world against the church, the outward. We've learned of the uh, outward persecutions that the church will face, for example, and the outward judgments that the world will suffer, the calamities, the earthquakes, the, the plagues, the wars, the outward things that the world will suffer because of their wickedness and unbelief. But from now on, we will focus at least a lot more closely on the unseen battle, the spiritual battle, that which is behind the scenes. And, uh, well, we think of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The Apostle Paul was pointing out that there is an invisible battle, a spiritual battle, not seen with the eyes of men, not seen with the human eye, a battle that is being played out spiritually behind the scenes. And that battle is going to be presented to us more clearly in the second half of the book, more explicitly to us. So there's two parts, the outward, which we have already seen and considered, and now the spiritual battle, a great spiritual picture 
is going to be presented to us uh, from now on in. So as we delve into this uh, 12th chapter, we will uh, start to get an, an idea of what that looks like. But uh, chapter 12, verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. So we have here a picture of a woman, a woman who is uh, expecting a child. And of course, this is not a, a literal woman. We ought to know that this is a book full of symbols, but this is uh, symbolic. This woman is symbolic of something else. And as will be obvious as the chapter goes on, this woman represents the church, the church of the living God. And uh, she is a glorious woman. That's how she's presented to us. A wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, resplendent, radiant, and the moon under her feet, speaking of dominion and power, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, speaking of royal, royalty possibly, or perhaps even a wreath, you could uh, translate it, which speaks of victory. This is the church. The woman is the church. And the number 12, of course, a crown of 12 stars. We've uh, noted several times in this book that 12 is a number symbolic of the church. And, uh, and this is how the church looks in the sight of God. And, uh, well, it's worth remembering, and it's been uh, pointed out already in this book, the great contrast that when the world looks upon the church, the world thinks that the church is ugly, that the church is uh, pathetic, something to be pitied, a poor and a feeble thing, something to be mocked. But in the sight of God, this is how it looks. This is how the church looks, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, so beautiful, so radiant. And when we labor for the Lord, the work that we do, the evangelism, the Sunday school and so on, to the sight of the world, well, it's so futile. It's so uh, useless. It's not going to amount to anything at all. But in the sight of God, this is where the power is. We have power. Power to lead men and women and youngsters to Christ. The power to save, as it were, by leading them to faith in Christ. This is what the church looks like in the sight of God. And this ought to be a great encouragement to us. The church is ugly in the world's sight, but this is how it appears in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And this woman, as I've already mentioned, she is with child, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. Now, who is this child? We need to identify the child first, and then everything else will start to fall into place. Well, this child is symbolic of the Lord Jesus Christ. The woman is symbolic of the church. The child is symbolic of Christ. And, uh, well, again, this is obvious. If you just look at verse 5, we have further details of who the child is. 
and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 2 verse 9, a messianic psalm, we read of the Messiah, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. This is the Lord Jesus Christ being described. And even in this book, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 29, well, uh, the Lord himself refers to uh, himself as uh, uh, the rod of iron, verse 27 rather, chapter 2, verse 27, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to the shivers, even as I received of my father. So it's obvious that this child is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who else could rule all nations with a rod of iron? And then in, at the end of verse 5 in chapter 12, uh, the child is caught up unto God and to his throne, to the throne of God. Well, of course, this must be the Lord Jesus Christ. But the church we read in verse 2 is about to give birth, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. The church is about to give birth to Christ. Well, is this right? Is this theologically right? Christ, we know, is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. He does not come forth from the church as though uh, the church invented Christ or as though the church created Christ. Of course not. But uh, the church is pictured here as travailing in birth in this sense. In the Old Testament, well, the church, those who truly trusted, they were always longing for Christ. They were always looking for Christ. They were always preaching about Christ, preparing the nation of Israel for Christ. They were longing for his coming. They were agonizing in that sense and preparing the way, travailing, longing and waiting, just in the same way that when uh, there is a pregnancy, when a woman is expecting, there is a period of expectation and longing for the child to appear. Well, that same expectation and longing was in the church. The church was longing for Christ to appear, just as an expectant mother would long for her child to appear. She being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And of course, there is another sense in which Christ was born of the church, in the sense that he came from the line of those who trusted in him, from the line of Abraham, for example. He was from the lineage of Abraham. He was from the line of David, the son of David. That's one of his messianic titles. He comes from that line. So in a sense, he is physically born out of the church. We have the genealogies in uh, uh, the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to Luke, tracing the lineage, almost presenting to us how Christ is born out of the church. So he's not literally born out of the church. We know that he's not created by the church, but uh, he comes out of all those who were looking for him and preaching him and having faith in him. 
there was the true church in Israel, and out of the true church came the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the woman here who is the church, we have the child who is the Lord Jesus Christ, but then there's a third character here in verse 3. And there appeared another wonder or sign in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head, or upon his heads. And, uh, well, it, perhaps it's a bit easier for us to understand who uh, the great red dragon is. This is Satan. And, uh, well, again, we only need to look a few verses on to get confirmation of that. In verse 9, and the great dragon was cast out. Who is the great dragon? That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. So it's not a mystery. It's very clear. The great dragon is Satan. He's a great red dragon. He's described here. Red is the color of blood and bloodshed, murder, war, destruction. That's how he's painted here, a great red dragon. And then you read that he has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Well, uh, again, these are symbolic features. The horn in the uh, Old Testament is always a sign of uh, might and power. That's what a horn means, authority, might and power. And, uh, well, we discussed this uh, last week. Satan has power, yes, but he only has as much power as God has allowed him to have. God has given him the power that he has. And remember that number 10, the 10 horns, that number symbolizes something that is given by God. Satan has a measure of power, but it is only God who has allowed him to have that. Herman Herxmer writes, This number indicates that the power of the devil is limited by the sovereign decree of God Almighty and that the devil can do no more or no less than that which God has decreed for him. So the ten horns, that's the power that God has given Satan. And when we think of that, I know it's a difficult thing to uh, to consider or to uh, come to terms with. But when we read that God gives Satan power, it's not that God is helping Satan. It's that God is over Satan. He's ruling over Satan. He's not helping Satan. This is a sign that God is over him and God can limit his power. And then, well, you have the seven heads. And, uh, well, that causes some to uh, be concerned because seven, we have noted already, is the uh, number of divine perfection or completeness, and it usually belongs to God. That's how we've seen it so far in this book, seven associated with the complete perfection, divine perfection of God and his Christ. Why is it here? Well, this is part of the deception of Satan. He is an imitator of God. He wants to make himself look like God. He gives himself these crowns. These are not crowns given to him by God. 
These are crowns to make him look like God. And this is the great deception, the great lie that Satan forces upon the world, that he is just as powerful as God, that he is just as good as God, that he is just as kind as God. This is Satan's disguise, having seven heads and ten horns, seven crowns upon his heads. But really, this is a monstrous picture. A great red dragon, this of course is not God. With seven heads, ten horns, a monstrous and hideous picture. And uh, well, this is what Satan truly looks like. I uh, spoke earlier about how when the world looks at the church, the church looks ugly in the sight of the world, but actually it's very beautiful. But it's the opposite here when uh, the world looks at Satan and all of Satan's temptations. They look so beautiful. But actually the real appearance of Satan is that he's a, a dragon, one who loves to shed blood, a murderous creature. That's what Satan truly is like. That's his true appearance under heaven. And uh, so uh, we draw that contrast. But then verse 4, well, we read something else about the dragon. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Well, there's a lot in this verse. First, we read of how the uh, dragon's tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. Well, uh, this is a reference to how Satan fell from heaven. Many of you will know that uh, Satan was once uh, an angel in heaven, not always evil, not always fallen. He uh, worshipped God. He was a prominent angel, it appears, an archangel perhaps, but he was filled with great pride. And uh, one of the passages, we're not going to turn to it, but one of the passages that explains to us the pride that was seen in Satan's heart is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14 and verse 13. The words of his heart are presented to us there. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Satan desired to uh, uh, usurp God or at least be equal to God and uh, not to serve God in the way that he had been doing in heaven. And uh, when he instigated this rebellion against God, it is uh, clear that he seduced other angels to join him, to join forces with him. That was his temptation, even to those heavenly angels, to join with him. And uh, when Satan was overcome, when Satan fell from heaven, well, all those other angels fell with him. The third part of the stars of heaven. And, uh, well, we read that again in verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out. That was when he was cast out from heaven. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So verse 9 really is another way of saying what verse 4 says. 
His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, those angels who had been taken in by Satan. And verse 9 confirms it. He was cast out and his angels were cast out with him. So uh, Satan desired to uh, compete with God, to rebel against God. But instead he was cast out and all those angels with him who are now those principalities and powers who rage against the church. But then let's look at the last part of verse 4 because this is very intriguing. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Well, these are, uh, well, horrible pictures. The picture here, the dragon is standing before the woman who is about to give birth. The intention of the dragon is to devour, to consume the child as soon as it is born. And what is this speaking of? Well, it's speaking about Satan's attempt to destroy Christ. Satan's great desire to prevent Christ from coming to this earth and from carrying out his work of salvation. That's what it is speaking of. William Hendrickson goes into this in great detail in his book, More Than Conquerors. But ever since Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the first prophecy of Christ, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Ever since that prophecy, Satan has been warring against Christ and desiring to destroy Christ. And uh, throughout the Old Testament period, there were many times when Satan thought he had won, right from the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had uh, Cain and Abel, and well, Satan no doubt must have thought he'd won when Cain killed godly Abel. Now there will be no godly line. Surely Christ will not come now, but God gave Seth to Adam and Eve, and it was through Seth that the line would come. And then perhaps Satan thought he had won when the Jews, the children of Israel, of Abraham, were enslaved in Egypt. Perhaps Satan thought he had won then. Pharaoh is not going to let them go. The Messiah, he can't come now. Israel is in slavery. What are they going to do? But God raised up Moses. And Moses led them out into liberty, redeemed them as it were. Perhaps Satan thought he had won too when, uh, well, King David was anointed to be king. Satan put it into the heart of Saul, kill David. And then the line of David, the son of David, will never appear. He wants Saul to do his dirty work. But again, David, he was protected. He eluded Saul. And then, of course, and perhaps this is what is being specifically alluded to here, when Christ was born, well, did not Satan put it into the heart of Herod, Herod the king, to go out and to slay all the children in Bethlehem and the coasts thereof, all those children under two years of age? 
Kill all of them. Surely that will secure the victory, says Satan. But it doesn't. Of course not. But this is what this is uh, communicating to us. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. All of those occasions, that is what Satan is after. He desires the uh, destruction of Christ, but he fails. He fails in that endeavor. And Christ comes, verse 5, She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And then verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Well, uh, we won't look at that verse uh, this uh, evening. Uh, We'll uh, reserve that until next week, because uh, uh, I just wanted to uh, bring to our attention this war that uh, we see in heaven from verse 7 onwards. And just to close with this, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Well, I just want to bring out some uh, uh, features of this passage because uh, these things that we read of here, this war in heaven runs alongside all that I have been explaining to you this evening. And, uh, well, the war in heaven, we have Michael and his uh, angels. This is Michael the archangel who is, uh, if we can put it this way, a good angel, and he is fighting against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. There is a war in heaven, but Satan loses. Satan loses this war, and heaven rejoices because, namely, at the end of verse 10, the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. That is the great cause of rejoicing. The accuser of the brethren is cast down. Satan, that's who he is. Satan is an accuser of God's people. And uh, in summing this passage up, what the commentators have uh, said, uh, Hendrickson and particularly Herximer, they have uh, sought to explain this passage in uh, the following way. Before Christ came in time, there was a particular spiritual conflict and strife in heaven over the Lord's people and over the salvation of the Lord's people. We read in the book of Jude, for example, Jude verse 9, 
that there was a dispute between Michael, the archangel, and the devil. There was a strife, a conflict between Michael and the devil over what? Over the body of Moses. Now, is it possible that this dispute ran along these lines? Satan was accusing Moses. Satan was saying, Moses can't go to heaven. Christ hasn't come yet. Moses, look at all of his failings. Look at all of his errors. Look at all of his disobedience. How can you let him into heaven? That was the strife. That was the dispute. Moses deserves to be in hell. And perhaps Satan said the same of others, of Abraham. You can't let Abraham into heaven. He's a liar. Remember, he said that Sarah was not his wife, just his sister. You can't let Abraham into heaven. There's no uh, atonement for sin. That hasn't come yet. You can't let him in. That was the nature of the strife. And perhaps David, King David, how can you let David into heaven? He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. This was the nature of the conflict that was going on, this war in heaven. But then when Christ came, when Christ came, when he rose victorious and ascended up on high, well, now that power was gone. Satan can no longer accuse anybody. He can't do it. The accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night, before Christ came in time. Before he suffered and died for his people, Satan could accuse all of the saints, all of the prophets. But now that Christ has come, he can't. He hasn't got a leg to stand on, as it were. Christ has come. Yes, they are sinners. Yes, Abraham is a sinner. Yes, David is a sinner. Yes, Moses is a sinner. But Christ has now come. He's paid their sin debt. Doesn't matter what Satan says now. He can accuse as much as he wants. God has declared all those who trust in Christ not guilty. They are justified by faith. Christ has come and we are safe. We are secure. It is finished, cried Christ on the cross. And that was the end of Satan's accusing. There is no power in his accusations. And while we close just with this, Satan's accusations, they don't have any power over us. Yes, they can drag us down. Satan still accuses us. You know what it's like when we fall into sin, when we are unworthy, when we let our besetting sins get the worst of us, get the better of us. Satan will come alongside us and say, you don't deserve to go to heaven. You deserve to go to hell. God will never accept you. God will never save you. Well, we remember this passage. And we remember it with greater joy and delight than the Old Testament saints could. Christ hadn't come then, even though they had faith, but Christ has come. And we know for sure that he has suffered and died. He has made full atonement for our sin. So Satan's accusations, 
They have no power over us. But until Christ came, there was that war. There was that strife. But Christ has come and he is the one who has purchased us, liberated us from such guilt and such fear. Well, dear friends, we've gone through uh, quite a number of things this evening. I won't go any further, but uh, next week we will look at the church, the woman, as she flees into the wilderness, that place prepared of God.